Well, good morning, second service. Let's wave at all of our live streamers. Guys, great to have you. Let's wave at our upstairs people. Great to have you with us as well. Um, uh, how's everybody doing? Good, enjoying the weather out there? Sweet daddy, that's what I'm talking about. I looked at the 30-day forecast, which they don't even know what's coming tomorrow, but the 30-day forecast looks like it's gonna be 70s from here on out, so that's what I'm talking about. Let's go plant all our gardens, and uh, the only problem is, is this is when mosquitoes are like, Summer, let's go. So, whatever. Well, if you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. If you need a pen, hold up a couple fingers. And if you need anything else, talk to the ushers. They'll, they'll take care of it. But, uh, guys, we are quickly approaching the end of our Piercing the Darkness series. Uh, and these last two weeks, we have been focusing on the topic of how, how do we approach making a disciple? Uh, we know Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples, but if we're going to be honest, we really aren't familiar how to do that, okay? We have either been told that it's the pastor's job, you know, I just need to get him to church, he'll seal the deal, he'll do what he needs to do. Um, we've been either taught that, or we've been taught how to make converts. We really haven't been shown or taught how to make disciples. So during this series, uh, we clearly see what Jesus is asking us to do, that we're to be making disciples, so we need to know how to do that. And so these last two weeks and, and today, we're focusing on that. And today we're gonna be wrapping up that topic as part of this larger series, okay? So, uh, name of the title today is How to Approach Making Disciples, Part Three. I am super creative when it comes to titles of sermons. So just uh, let my creativity flow. All right, well, today I did tell you that we're going to be looking at some advice from the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're going to be looking at some uh, verses that he wrote to Timothy. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, if you, uh, if you have a hard time finding 2 Timothy in the New Testament, a little trick I learned when I was a kid that is that if you find 1 Timothy, it comes directly after that. So that's just, a, I'll give you that for free this morning. Okay, no charge for that one. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 24, and I'll just read it to you this morning. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, I think these are some incredibly awesome verses for us to work through, especially with the topic that we're on right now. And I want us to kind of work through these verses point by point. So let's, let's do that this morning. Verse starts out by saying, and the Lord's servant, and let's just stop there right to begin with. Who is this passage addressing? The Lord's servant, right? Okay, now who does that entail? All of us, right? We are the Lord's servant. We've talked about this in previous series. That's our title. We are the Lord's servant. In fact, the Apostle Paul would often start off his epistles, his letters that he wrote to the churches. He would start off by saying, the, I'm the Apostle Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He, he carried that title boldly. 
Well, guess what? That is our title as well. We are servants of the Lord. And so if we are servants of the Lord, then this passage is talking to us. Okay? We had better pay attention. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So guys, what I want us to see is that when leading people to believe in Jesus, making disciples, we must not be argumentative or quarrelsome. We do not approach making disciples in the form of an argument or a debate. Do you hear me on this? I feel like Christianity has done exactly that. That, that is often why we get so nervous when it comes to leading someone to Christ. We feel like we have to try to win an argument. Well, guess what? We, aren't, we don't have to argue. Remember last week? We are leading a person to Jesus. We are introducing them to a person, and that person is Jesus. We're not trying to win an argument. So don't approach making a disciple, a disciple in that way. It just sets you up for problems. Arguing and debating just makes for problems. I personally think this is such a good point for all of us to pay attention to. And here's why. If we approach the discussion in the form of an argument, we instantly pit that other person against us. Now, I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Let me try to explain. I don't know what it is in us as humans, but if anyone disagrees with us, we feel like we need to get our hackles up and we're ready for war. You ever notice that? I mean, if someone disagrees with us and we begin to argue, we instantly don't like them. It's, it's kind of crazy. We instantly put our walls up and we start thinking bad about that other person. We're like, that so-and-so doesn't agree with me. Now, you know, the more I think about it, he's always been kind of a jerk. <laughs> I've never really liked him. And our feathers get all ruffled and we feel like that if they disagree with us, it's a personal attack on us. What in the world is up with that? Why are we like that? Like, for instance, just because I like the Bears, you guys can't stand me. Bunch of Packer fans. <laughs> just kidding. Well, maybe. Kind of not kidding. <laughs> you guys are rough. But you know what I mean? We get bent out of shape when someone doesn't agree with us. And we Christians can be the absolute worst when it comes to this. We love to argue. We love to debate. I mean, we are all talking like, well, I mean, we have the truth, so let's just ram it down someone's throat and verbally debate them to the ground so they feel like fools for thinking the way they thought. We're like, did you see that debate against the Christian versus the atheist? It was awesome. That Christian just made him look like an idiot. He point by point verbally decimated him and proved what an idiot he was for being an atheist. It was so awesome. Do you know that there is, uh, there is something called a Christian apologist? A Christian apologist is someone who argues in defense of Christianity. Now, please hear me on this. There is a place for that. There certainly is. There's a place for Christian apologists. I'm not knocking it. But the very premise of that is kind of shaky ground for me. I will argue in defense of Christianity? Now, I have no problem giving a defense for what we believe in. Peter even alludes to that. He says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. If somebody says, what's this hope within you? You gotta be ready to give him a reason for it. Now, the context of that verse is here are Christians. They are being 
thrown to the lions. They're being thrown in prison. They're being uh, murdered, burnt at the stake. They, they were being taken and shish dunked in tar, put up on stakes, and lit on fire so that Nero could have his garden lit at night. And yet, these Christians were exploding, and the, the world was growing in leaps and bounds with Christianity, and Christians were walking around with all this hope. And Peter's like say, said to them, listen, be ready to give a reason for that hope, because it doesn't make any sense in the world we live in. So we can certainly do that. But to argue? I guess I'm not certain that arguing is the best way to convince someone of the truth. And yet, Christians do this all the time. And we actually think it works. We will set up debates where atheists and Christians debate each other, and it turns into this big argument back and forth. You know what I found with debates? I don't care what debates they are. Whatever person you're cheering for, you usually walk away with go, my guy won. You've ever noticed that? It's like, my guy won. And then the other person on the other side is like, my guy won. And then you're debating. You're fighting about that. Happens all the time. Guys, it is highly unlikely that you will debate or argue someone into the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying it is impossible because God can do anything and use anything. I just don't think it's the best way to go about it. Because think about it. Let me ask you this seriously. How, it is, how has it ever worked for you to argue and debate someone who has a different opinion than you? Maybe I'm an anomaly, but when I try to argue and debate, people usually dig in their heels and it gets ugly. And I don't care where it is. For instance, when has it ever worked for you to argue with an ump for making a call that you didn't like? And I used to be on a, on a softball team of a church a long time ago, and uh, we were in a bar league. And I thought, this is a perfect place to shine Jesus in this bar league, to be you know, examples of Jesus. Guess what? We were the worst in arguing. If an ump would make a call, a lot of times the pastor of the church would run up and yank it out. What are you doing? He was saved. I saw him. He was saved. He was like freaking out. And I used to be just like, oh my word, and we're a church. It's crazy. And guys, never, and I mean never, have I ever seen an ump go, oh, you make a valid point. <laughs> and because you're so passionate and emotional about it, it makes me really feel like you're right and I'm wrong. So I'm gonna reverse my call. I've never seen an ump do that. And yet on the softball field, that just keeps happening over and over. Teams keep arguing and fighting and debating. And like I said, we do that in all the circles of our life, even how we deal with unbelievers who disagree with us. We argue with them. Paul is very clear. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Arguing and debating doesn't change hearts. It produces quarrels. And no quarrel has ever taken down a wall between two individuals. It only puts them up. The last thing that you want to do with an unbeliever is to put up a wall between the two of you. So don't go into your conversation ready to argue and ready to rumble. Don't come into it armed and ready to verbally out-debate them to the ground. Sure, you can have your answers to some very tough questions, but don't come into the conversation ready to argue. Okay? We must not be quarrelsome. 
Paul goes on. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to who? Everyone. You see that? The Lord's servant must be kind. Here's what I want you to see. We are serving the Lord when we choose to be kind to those who don't agree with us. When you're kind, you are serving the Lord. And who are you kind to? Well, you're kind to the person who's against you, who disagrees with you, doesn't see eye to eye with you. Probably this person is 180 degrees opposite your viewpoint. But you show them kindness. And kindness to those who oppose us, it literally shakes the ground from under them. The kingdom of darkness has no response to kindness. It doesn't know what to do to kindness. That's why we're called to kindness. Guys, I don't know about you, but I am far more willing to listen to the viewpoint of a kind person than I am to listen to a know-it-all debater. Use kindness as your ammunition, Whitestone. It's powerful. Something about kindness that I think helps me is that ultimately I need to realize that my battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other human beings, okay? Who's it against? Yeah, Satan, against the powers of darkness, the unseen realm. The kingdom of darkness is the one who holds these people captive, as we're going to see soon. So ultimately, our battle is against them, not the person. And here's what I'm getting at. That word kindness, it actually comes from an old English word that finds its root in the word kin. What is kin? Does anybody know? It's family. So when we're showing someone kindness, we're basically saying, hey, I'm treating you like my kin. I'm treating you like family. We belong to each other. We have a kinship. Now, you and I have a common enemy, and I hate your enemy, but I love you. So when we're dealing with unbelievers, don't treat them like they're the enemy because they aren't. Treat them like kin. Show them kindness. And when we do that, that builds bridges to people. Let's keep looking at what Paul says. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach. Now, at the beginning of the verse, we see that this is addressing the Lord's servant. And who is the Lord's servant again? All of us, okay? Now, what is the Lord's servant supposed to be able to do, according to this verse? Teach. We must be able to teach. Now, if you were kind of on the fence wavering like, man, I don't know what you said at the beginning. Is it really the pastor's job to reach people for Christ or is it my job? Well, let me tell you something. Right here, if you were leaning toward it's the pastor's job, this unravels it. Because this verse clearly proves we must all be doing the job of teaching. You must be able to teach. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Luke, I'm no teacher. I can't do that. And I get that. I do. Trust me, I don't know how you school teachers do what you do. Those of you who do homeschool, I mean, you guys are like my heroes. All you teachers are my heroes because I don't know how you do that. For one year, one lousy year, we decided to homeschool my youngest son. And because Shauna wasn't healthy enough, I had to do the majority of it. And I didn't know what I was doing. And so we're kind of doing math and we're trying, you know those little math, what are they called? Were you... Hold up a card. Flashcards. Yeah, I'm doing flashcards with them, and we're doing uh, fours. So I'm like, all right, four times four. I don't know. 
16. Okay, it's 16. Four times five. 20. No, I mean, I'd say four times five. He'd go, I don't know. It's 20. And I'd go back to four by four, four times four. I'm like, four times four, what is it? I don't know. Mac, I just said it's 16. It's 16. Okay? 16. Say it with me. 16. I put it back. Four times five? I don't know. Four times six? I don't know. 24. And I'd go back to four by four times four because I knew he would still have it. I'm going, four times four. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. How do you teachers do it? I don't know how you do it. I'm just like, this is driving me nuts. So I get it. If you're sitting here like, I don't know how to teach. Well, guys, when it comes to sharing Christ, we must be able to teach. Every one of us. So let me ask you, if you must be able to teach, then what must you do? I didn't hear anything you got to learn, and if you're going to learn, what do you got to do? you got to study. Exactly. There's a verse in Timothy where Paul says to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So study. You must study. We all must study. And we study so that we can teach. Guys, true students of the Word can then be true teachers of the Word. If you aren't a student of the word, if you aren't a student of Jesus, if you aren't a student of discipleship, then you can't teach. Now, you can fake it, but I tell you, faking it does not cut the mustard. Faking it in anything doesn't cut the mustard. It eventually falls apart. Like, I remember my, my sons, I, I never played baseball. I don't know the last thing about baseball, and so I was, you know, kind of... Just, it was clueless when it came to baseball. Well, my two sons wanted to play baseball. So as a father, you're kind of like, well, let me coach you boys how to do baseball. So I quickly did a little weekend warrior, and I was trying to look at YouTube videos on how to coach baseball. And they say, do batting, you know, hit little grounders at them in the field and learn, teach them how to do the, you know, what's it called, fielding. And uh, so I'm like, all right, boys, let's go out there. I'm going to teach you a little bit of how to field uh, baseballs. And so you know how these coaches, they make it look so easy. They're like, ding. Ding, while I'm out there. And I just kept missing. And my boys are like waiting for a ball. But I'm like, you know what? Forget it, guys. I'm just going to throw you the balls. So I'm winging the balls at them. And then I'm trying to teach them other stuff. I didn't know what I was doing. My son went to try out for baseball. Three hours he sat under a coach for the tryouts. He learned more in that three hours than he did all season from me and my YouTube videos. Why? Because that person was a student of baseball. He had studied. He knew his stuff. Guys, if we intend on being able to teach, then we had better be willing to become students of Jesus. So study. Paul goes on. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. Now, you might wonder, well, why did Paul put that in there? The Lord's servant must not be resentful? What does that have to do with anything? Well, let me explain. When people disagree with each other and they begin to argue, they will oppose each other, okay? And when they oppose each other, they will often start to demean each other. They'll try to tear the other person down. It's kind of a human tendency to do that. Well, many unbelievers will do the same thing to Christians. 
They will try to rip them. They will try to demean them. They'll call them stupid or foolish or idiots for believing what they do. Well, when that happens, it's so easy to become resentful. We become offended. How dare you say that what I believe is stupid? And then, often because we get offended and we get resentful, guess what we do? We hurl insults back, and we do the same thing back. Well, you're an idiot for not believing in God. You're a moron for not believing. And and next thing you know, you have all these people who are angry at each other. And when that happens, it's so easy to let that anger just sink in, and we find ourselves harboring resentment towards someone. And when resentment settles into our hearts, guys, the enemy gets a foothold. And it never produces anything good. It's interesting, this week while I was preparing this sermon, I was kind of going through a bunch of uh, quotes from uh, atheists who were just kind of ripping, you know, just shredding Christianity and shredding people who believe in Christianity. And as I was reading them, and as I was going through them, I'm like, I was getting all ticked off, getting offended. I'm like, well, you're an idiot for even saying that. I can't believe you didn't. And I was getting all ticked off these guys and, and wanting to hurl insults back at them. And then I realized, like, oh, my word, I'm doing exactly what Paul tells me not to do. Now, they couldn't hear me, but I was feeling it. Well, that's the point Paul is making. He says, don't become resentful. Don't let yourself become offended. Ultimately, guys, here's what you need to understand. They are not rejecting you. Guess who they're rejecting? Yeah, they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting God. It should actually cause us to have mercy and sorrow and compassion on them that they're so blinded. Paul goes on in the verse. He goes, opponents must be gently instructed. Do you see that? Opponents. Those who oppose you. What must we do? Gently instruct. One time I was was reading a bunch of books of an author, and uh, I wanted to get a hold of this author, and I found his phone number, and I called him up, and um, I'll tell you what, when I talked to this guy, he was the perfect example of what gently instructing means. Because there were some things, there was quite a few things that I didn't see his viewpoint. I, was, I believed something different. And so I would, you know, in my foolish kind of pride and youthful pride, I'd be like, well, you mean this is, this is the way it is, right? Because this is what the Bible says on this. And I'd just let him have it. And he'd go, well, you know, that's that's a viewpoint. That's one way to look at it. It's very true, and a lot of people do see it that way. He says, but here would be something I would suggest. Well, why don't we look at it from this perspective? And he would gently instruct, and he would do it in such a way that I didn't even know that he was slowly but surely just allowing me to change my mind on something. And he did it gently. We must gently instruct because when we do, we bit by bit give truth to them. And because of our gentleness, the truth isn't rejected. It's accepted. And when we are gentle like that, guys, I tell you, it it, it is powerful because Christians are not known for their gentleness. We're here to ram it down your throat, baby. And you take it or leave it. That's not gentle. Timothy goes on. He goes, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, very quickly, that word repentance, the very simple definition of repentance is this. It means a change of mind, okay? So when Jesus would call people to repent, he was simply saying to them, now that you've been presented with the truth, change your mind from how you were thinking before. 
Repentance is a change of mind. Okay, so let's look at that verse again. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them a change of mind, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. We gently instruct. We just keep gently giving them the truth. We just keep gently piling on the truth, keep explaining the truth, always gently, because we know that God is working behind the scenes. It is the Holy Spirit who's working on his heart or her heart, on his mind or her mind, coming against the kingdom of darkness, coming against the lies over and over. The truth is just hammering at these lies so that one day, suddenly, the light turns on. And suddenly, they have a change of mind, and they come to the knowledge of the truth. When that happens, it is an absolutely beautiful thing. Last fall, we had our anniversary Sunday. And Jason and his wife, Jill Ann, were up here on the stage, and Jason was kind of telling us about his journey, how he, he gave his life he, to, to Jesus, and he became a follower of Jesus. And he'd grown up in the church his whole life, and he had been here sermon after sermon, and message after message, and he got married to Jillian, and she became a follower of Christ, and she just gently loved on him, gently showed him Jesus, gently instructed. And, and so one day, he actually joined discipleship with his son. He's like, well, I'm going to do a little father and son thing, you know, and he sat there, and he's like, I probably heard this all before, and he's listening. Well, the Spirit of God is working behind the scenes on Jason's heart and Jason's mind. To eventually, one day, as he's sitting there, it's all of a sudden, doo -doo 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 -doo, everything falls into place, and it, the light comes on. And he was granted repentance. He was granted a change of mind. That's what the Spirit of God does. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Now, look at how Paul puts it in verse 26. He says, let me read back 25. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their what? Senses. I love that. They will suddenly come to their senses. Now, it's interesting because when we come to our senses, we will often go, why did I ever think that? Well, because you were blinded. Now, look at what Paul tells us, what is actually happening. You'll see what I'm saying. And hopefully you're seeing this is why we don't get angry. This is why we don't get resentful at these people. This is why we are gentle. Check this out. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses, pay attention to this, and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Do you see what's going on in the unseen realm with these people? They have literally been trapped by the enemy. The enemy has taken them captive to do his will. And guess what? The enemy's will is dead set against God's will. The enemy leads them into captivity and prison, but God's will leads them to freedom. And these people, when they come to their senses, they become free, amen? They believe in the truth. They're no longer captive to do the enemy's will. Now, do you want to know why that happened? I'll tell you why. Because you didn't argue with them. You didn't quarrel with them. You didn't become resentful, resentful against them. And instead, you gently, ever so gently and patiently instructed them day in and day out. 
And the Holy Spirit, he was doing his supernatural work in their hearts and minds. And as you both did your part, suddenly the day came where, boom, they came to a knowledge of the truth and they come to their senses. And here's the great part. They were set free. Amen? They escaped from the trap of the devil who has taken them to do his will. And what's the enemy's will? Well, it's to sin. He's been sinning since the beginning. He tries to get everybody involved in that. But when they, suddenly the lights come on and they come to their senses and they experience repentance, these men and women that we're spending time with, gently instructing, they see the truth of Jesus and they believe in Jesus. We talked about a few weeks ago that when they believe in Jesus, they are regenerated. Suddenly they are made alive. Their connection with their source is reconnected. And they become disciples of Jesus and they start to experience sanctification. They, they start to experience holiness in their life and they're set free from sin more and more in their life. And they start to experience glorification where they look like Jesus more and more. And then guess what those people begin to do? They go back out and they begin to make disciples. Disciples of Jesus. And the cycle continues. And that's the miracle that happens in people's lives. And that's why Jesus tells us to do what he tells us to do. Because it changes people's lives. So let's do our part, Whitestone. Let's take the command of Jesus and go out into the circles of our influence, the circles of our kingdom, and let's make disciples of Jesus. Let's apply the advice Paul tells us to do, and let's be used by God to set the captives free. Amen? I want you to go into your circles of your influence, and I want you to look into the unseen realm, because when you see these people who don't believe Jesus, you need to understand that they are captives. They are held in chains. They are in prisons. And it's your job, along with the Holy Spirit, to set them free. And Paul gives us advice on how to do that. So let's apply it. Because the Spirit of God will be doing his part in the process. And you can count on that and praise God for that because it'd be impossible without him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible advice. I pray that you would change that in us and that you would make us gentle instructors and that we would lovingly instruct those those that we are in contact with, those in our circles. And Holy Spirit, may you continue to use the truth as we proclaim it. May you work in their hearts in such a way that they be brought to repentance, a change of mind. And may they be set free from the prison that they are in and be released into the freedom that God provides. I pray that you would use us to do that. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Let it be so. Amen. If any of you would like to be prayed for, we've got a couple people up here who would love to do that with you. And uh, even if you kind of find yourself like, man, this is intimidating. How do I do this in the circles of my influence? Have them pray for you. They would love to do that. Guys, I love you. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next Sunday.